Grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to continue on the last few weeks of our series, Incomparable Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We have been growing our hearts to treasure Jesus in greater ways so that we can be changed and transformed by him. We have spent almost a year in this book of Luke, and now as we come into land, we're in the Passion Week. And one of my favorite uh, things about this series is how we have seen Jesus as a great and sympathetic high priest. We have seen his humanity throughout the book of Luke. And Hebrews says it this way, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in this Passion Week where Jesus has come into Jerusalem, he's preparing to go to the cross, we have seen maybe the humanity of Jesus more clearly than anywhere. As we, over the last couple of weeks, have seen him in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, really seeing just the humanity and the brokenness as he goes before the Father, pleading in prayer, saying, God, could you remove this cup from me? Last week, we looked with fresh eyes as we saw Judas betray him and Peter deny him. And it's in these places that we realize, oh, Jesus understands. He knows what it's like to have friends question him and and leave him. He knows what it's like to be accused and, and to be hurt and even beaten. He can empathize with me and my story. He was a rejected savior. And so in these texts, we, we identify with him and him with us. And it's good news. It's good news, as Ray, or Dane Ortland says, when you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. See, Jesus loves it when his people come and they need his love. They need his empathy and his sympathy. But see, it's important that we not only identify with Jesus in the story here at the end, we need to identify with the other characters. There's other players that we're gonna look at today as Jesus goes before Pilate and before Herod. We'll see the Pharisees and, and the angry mob. And we need to identify with these characters too. They, they reflect us, our, our questioning, our accusing, maybe even our hard-hearted just betrayal and renouncing of Jesus. We, we're these characters as well, and so we have to come to terms with this. And so I want to encourage you, as I read now in Luke chapter 23, to just consider these other characters and how we might identify with them. Luke 23, picking up at verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us 
to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in a splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate, I addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the reading of God's word. My first point this morning is that Jesus is questioned. And I want us to look at the subtlety of deconstructing truth. It's interesting here that Pilate and Herod are curious. They actually want to see Jesus. They've heard about him. They've heard about his miracles. They heard about his teaching. And the text says that Pilate was glad to get this opportunity. And so they bring in Jesus. They're curious. They ask him questions. But it is the court of law. They're coming. uh, Jesus comes before them to get their ruling. And so as they question and they investigate, as they bring witnesses, they conclude that this man is not guilty. He is not worthy of death. But we see that he's also not worthy of them bowing the knee and actually calling him king. They don't believe. In fact, in the Gospel of John's portrayal of Jesus with Pilate, it says this, Jesus speaking, you say that I am a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And he walked away. Last week, Al talked about the growing deconversion trend that we are seeing in our culture. It is becoming all too popular to see uh, famous Christian celebrities or even influential pastors often with an Instagram post announcing that they have been enlightened and they are walking away from the faith. They're leaving the church. And I want us to return to this idea because I think that before you get to deconversion, you start with deconstruction. You start by asking, what is truth? This is the mantra of our day and our culture. We have become a post-truth people. It's becoming prevalent not only out there, but also here within the church. Increasingly, I, I see people deconstructing and questioning, what is truth? Is Jesus really king, the only way? I'm currently reading a book by Richard Rohr called Universal Christ, how a forgotten reality can change everything we see, hope for, and believe. I first heard of Rohr in uh, the Enneagram circles, uh, the personality profile test. He's written about that, and I found him to be uh, insightful and helpful in understanding and unpacking the Enneagram. But then I started hearing his voice more and more uh, in, in spiritual circles. And so I started to do some looking and realized, oh, this guy's a Franciscan priest. He's in the Catholic tradition and he's become a very well-known and influential author. And he's especially popular with uh, the younger generations. Millennials, I generation, and he's been a bit of a bridge of helping uh, people who have questions and doubts about Christianity to engage their faith. And so I was having a conversation with a friend, and, and we were talking about Roar, and I had some concerns, but he said, hey, would you read a book by him, and would you interact with it? We could talk about it. So I said, sure, and I got Universal Christ, and I got to be honest, I didn't make it very far before um, I had some questions. This is his dedication. You know, first page before the anything. He says, I dedicate this book to my beloved 15-year-old black lab, Venus, whom I, I had to release to God while beginning to write this book. Without any apology, lightweight theology, or fear of heresy, I can appropriately say that Venus was also Christ for me. What? My spidey senses are kind of going off. I'm like, D what, does he, what? You know, I'm just like, okay, I gotta, I gotta keep going. Is, is he saying what I think he's saying? And as I got deeper into the book, I realized that Rohr's theology is that he separates Jesus from Christ. And, and he starts by just making the point of, listen, people, Christ is not, a last name. It's not Jesus' last name. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's fair. That, that's a good point. See, it's Jesus the Christ. 
And what does Christ mean? It means anointed one. It means Messiah, the savior of God's people. And Roar makes the point that Jesus is a Christ, not the Christ. In fact, he takes it so far to say, in Christianity, we have made the mistake of limiting the creator's presence to just one human manifestation, Jesus. I mean, why, why limit? And, and, and Roar's point is, you're Christ. I'm Christ. My dog is Christ. Even this podium is Christ. Because Christ is all. And I'm just going, what in the world is he talking about? I think we've left Orthodox Christianity. And I'm still reading, and I'm sure some of you have read Roar and been influenced. I'd love to chat with you about it. We can go back and forth. I, I think that would be healthy. But the best I can tell at this point is Roar is offering a new age pantheism with a Christian facade. It's cleaned up, it's polished, and he's positioned it for the 21st century I generation. And young people are being influenced and leaving the church in droves because they've realized, oh, everything is Christ. Always lead to heaven. And see, this isn't new. The Pharisees were asking this. Pilate was asking this. Jesus, is Jesus really king? And Paul, or we hear in the book of Acts that there is no other name by which we are saved. And so church, when we start to question and we start to deconstruct, is Jesus truth? We're in dangerous territory. And Paul saw this coming in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but understand this, that in the last day, there will be times of difficulty. He says there'll be lovers of self. And he has this long list, lovers of money, proud people who question God. He says, weak people will be carried off burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So one of my biggest fears for this generation is we start to make everything fluid. I mean, can we really know? Are we, can we be that certain? Can we really stand on just the rigid doctrine of the church through the centuries? And we start to deconstruct and question, and we just never arrive at truth. I mean, you can't really arrive at truth. But the New Testament authors warned about this. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints, to build them up, to help them grow into maturity. And it was going to take time and it was going to be hard work. And he says in four, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And he goes on to warn about the world and the culture. It says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Church, please hear my tone this morning as not one of shaming if you have questions and doubts and wrestles. If that's you, welcome to the family. That's me. I have questions. I, I have concerns. I continue to wrestle with this. But there's a difference between a proud hardness of heart that happens. There's a certain kind of questioning that is just arrogance. And then there's a questioning that is humble and it's wrestling. It questions with a bit of wisdom and a bit of discernment. And that's what I want to call us to this morning. It's not that you wouldn't have doubts and that you wouldn't have questions, but that you would do it with humility. And I want to give us just a couple guardrails that I think that can help us to do this well as a church community. The first one is to be honest, to process in community. Parents, I would encourage you, do this with and before your kids. Don't put up a, a, a shiny, polished exterior that says, I've got this all figured out, this Christian thing, it's easy. That's one of the things that is hurting our youth because they grow up in this church and with parents who say, hey, it's all easy, it's all good and clean, and then they go off to college and they realize that it's not. Life is hard, it's complex, and it's hard to walk out this life with Jesus. And because they didn't hear reality, then they question God and they leave the faith. Parents, be honest with your kids. Do it with them. My experience is, is the longer I go and the deeper I go in faith, I find that it's complex and there's questions. Pastor and author Jay Kim uses this illustration. He says faith is kind of like, in the initial stages, is like an airplane. It's pretty simple. It's a couple of folds, and you throw it, and you're off in sailing. It's free, and it's fun, but eventually, you kind of crash, and your nose gets bent. And he says, maybe we should think about the Christian life a little bit more like origami. And I have a picture here, and this is of Satoshi's, I can't even say that. I'm not going to say it right, is dragon. He's a dragon. So that, that's all the different folds and, and the way that you do it. Let's go to the next picture now. We can see what the finished product looks like. Whoa, is that awesome or what? Well, here's the deal. You can learn how to do this. The tutorial on YouTube is 12 hours long, okay? And, and it says that, uh, you know, people who are like, I don't, like, origamis, folders, yeah, folders is what I call them. The folders, they're, they're master folders. Um, they'll spend weeks and months perfecting this. And so church, I want to say the second guardrail as we go through our questions and our deconstructing is that we would do it with patience. A little bit more origami and a little bit less airplane. Kim says this, he says, patient faith. It's something that is glaringly missing from today's deconstruction stories. He says, perhaps instead of focusing on whether our faith is weak or strong, maybe we should think about, is it patient or impatient? 
So much of the deconstruction that is happening in our culture and on social media is just quick reaction. New ideas are thrown around and, and outrage culture erupts and people make decisions and they get all hot and bothered and there's not this discerning patience that says I need to be slow when dealing with the biggest questions of life. Third, my invitation to you would be don't deconstruct your faith. Deconstruct your culture. See, it's okay. I, I get it. I'm a kid that was born into and raised in conservative evangelical church. And as I came into my 20s and came into ministry, I actually had to go through some deconstruction because I began asking the question, why? Why do we do it this way? And I'm so thankful for some godly mentors that came around me and gave me space and helped me answer the question rather than just deconstruct. And it, it meant coming to terms with some things about my culture weren't that great. That maybe some of the ways in which and the whys that we did church weren't actually biblical Christianity. They were my culture coming in and having too much weight. Hunter Beaumont says that deconstruction is not what you're actually looking for. Disenculturation is. And disenculturation is a, a term that missionaries use. I, I was a missionary for a while in Africa. And one of the things that we would ask when going into a culture is how do I take the gospel? May way to understand it is the, the gospel is water, but it exists in different types of containers. The container is the culture. It's the ways that we bring the gospel to bear. And as, as in Africa, I noticed some interesting things about the Christian culture there, and I realized, oh, I think maybe they were given the mode sometimes, the container rather than the substance. I blame Sam and the Brits, you know, colonialism and stuff. Ooh, shots fired. But... <laughs> As I'd go into like rural Africa, you'd see these guys wearing ties and suits. And you're like, what in the world? That's not like how anybody else dresses. And you just realize, oh, I think, I think maybe the Baptists were here. That's not fair. But you know what I'm saying. And, and they, they would be like, there's this important ways that were not African ways necessarily. But then at the same time, they'd wear the suit and they wouldn't drink and they, you know, these things, but then they would still go see the witch doctor. And you're like, oh no, I don't think the gospel has gotten very deep. And so I want to say, sure, church, we need to disenculturate. We need to deconstruct our culture, but not our faith. My second point this morning is that Jesus is accused. And I want us to consider the danger of unity in contempt. See, the power of the mob has taken over at this point. Jesus is in the courtroom, and it's anything but a fair trial. It's expedited. He's taken in the middle of the night. The, the Mark's account of this story says multiple witnesses came. And the Pharisees were getting frustrated because their stories wouldn't line up. <laughs> and so they probed and they pushed Jesus. And 
asked him, are you really the king? He says, his classic line is, you say it is so. And they're like, blasphemy. He's worthy of death. But they don't have the power to execute anybody. This is a lower court. This, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the Jews. And so they take it to Pilate so that Rome has the authority to execute. But as they come before Pilate, the story changes. Blasphemy isn't the primary accusation. Now it's wrong done, insurrection done against the Rome's throne. And they say, this Jesus has stood against Caesar. He's been teaching everywhere and trying to lead a revolt which couldn't have been farther from the truth. Jesus didn't care about Caesar. See, he came leading and bringing a different kind of kingdom. And so Pilate and Herod declare him not guilty and the mob goes nuts. They begin to accuse, then they vehemently accuse and then it becomes urgent, demanding with loud cries. He should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Now I know I don't need to explain mob mentality to you. We've all become far too familiar with it this year, haven't we? Our cities have burned, our capital was stormed. And maybe if you were courageous enough to you know, put your toe in the water and post your thoughts online, you never knew how much people cared until you experienced the mob reacting to whatever your view was. And the mob says, Jesus is evil. He's dangerous, and he needs to be done away with. And we see how this happens with Herod. Even as Herod doesn't get what he wants from Jesus, he begins to resent, and it leads to contempt, and he has his soldiers beat and mock him. And the text says that on that day, Pilate and Herod become friends. Because as they had this shared experience and, and they know Jesus not morphing to the, what they want him to be, they find unity in contempt. And that's my question to us is, where have you become a contemptuous person this year? I don't know if any of us have been immune to it. Right? As we've experienced the different political polarization, the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers, the mass and the no mass, I think we've all, I know definitely I have, have fell into contempt at points. Those people over there. But now let me take you a little bit deeper into the rabbit hole of your soul. Where have you actually grown and felt contempt for Jesus? I mean, is there, is there some places, is there some areas where your heart is reacting to him not getting in line with what you desire? See, we love it when Jesus comes with his salvation and his mercy, but when he comes as Lord, all of a sudden it starts to challenge us. And as it's been said, we have found that there is no sin so great that we can't rationalize it. We rationalize what we want and we start to make it truth. And this is what our culture is doing in crazy ways all the time. For years, 
Our culture has put forward abortion, but it just continues to go now where marriage and, and sexuality and now even the God-given gender is no longer a given. And so we move the lines and we ask Jesus to get in line with what we want and what we think. And when he doesn't, and if he doesn't, and if the church doesn't line up with the way we'd like it to go, resentment and contempt grows. And then we find ourselves partnering up and pretty soon we identify with the mob saying Jesus is dangerous. And here's the danger of contempt. It will lead you to a crazy place where you, you will actually exchange life and ask for death. Think about the crowd. They say, crucify, crucify him and give us Barabbas. It's one of the great fears of my life is that I will become the crowd. As I have more and more friends and heroes and see pastors walk away from the faith. That's why I cling to the words of that great hymn that we sang this morning. Lord, I'm prone to wander. I feel it. Bind my wandering heart to thee. And church, there's good news because in this place of question and doubt and wrestle, Jesus shows up again as merciful and faithful. He stands firm in his innocence and in his love. See, the, the character that we should most identify with is Barabbas. Barabbas is the one who has been judged and found wanting. He's guilty. And that's you and that's me. And yet what we see, Jesus, this one who over and over Luke is trying to get us to see, even through the court of law, he has no guilt. He is innocent. Three times Pilate says, what? What has he done? He's innocent. And even Herod agrees. And yet Jesus, see, I know you see Jesus too often, right? As this meek, mild-mannered guy frolicking in meadows with baby lambs and kids. But I'm telling you, Jesus is hardcore. He's more, more like Jason Bourne meets James Bond, Daniel Craig version. I mean, he's taking a beating and torture, and he just takes it. And it's not because he's weak, and it's not because he couldn't react and call down fire from heaven. It's because he's in this place of willingly going to the cross. He's sovereign over the whole situation. He knew how this was gonna go. And so he takes it. The abuse, the lies. And he steps forward and he says, I'll be a substitute. 
all go in the place of Barabbas. All take execution. And Barabbas can walk away free. He'll be declared just. He'll be justified. And that's what Jesus offers you and me. It's an incredible exchange. And this is what Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See guys, some of these big words matter. Substitution, justification, propitiation, which means to be put forward to appease. That a God who is holy, who has to stand over judgment of sin, needs to be able to rain down justice and to be appeased. And so Jesus took our place and he went to the cross. And so church, this is why it's so important. I, listen, I, I'm not mad at Roar. I don't, I don't have a vendetta against Roar. But it's so important, and I have to preach if I'm going to be a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, listen, when we walk away from Jesus, we walk away from the atonement, and the whole thing falls apart. Our faith is built on Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen? And he offers himself as a substitute for you. That's good news. And so come with your wrestles and come with your doubts and Jesus will stand firm in faithfulness, being innocent for you even when you struggle to be. He'll stand firm in love and then he'll actually give of himself. See, it's not you are Christ, it's Christ is in you. His very presence, his spirit given to you. And he invites you and he says, listen, the world in John 15, he says, the world is going to hate you. If you stand firm, if you follow the way of God, church, can we come to terms with this? The world's gonna hate us. Okay, move on. Jesus says, you can abide in me and my love and I will be with you and I will help you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being faithful. That though I stumble and stray, that though I, I question, my heart is often divided, you are faithful. You pursue, and you bought me with your precious blood. Jesus, I thank you that you made the payment. And I pray now, would you help us? Would you help Southlands Church, Jesus? We don't, we don't wanna be a people that meets the culture's contempt, the mob's contempt with contempt. No, we wanna be like you, Jesus. We wanna stand quietly at peace with the Father and able to stand firm in innocence and love. Help us to be a church. Help Southlands to be known for her great love for you and her great love for the world around. Help us, Jesus. Amen.